we uh, started last week, or ended last week, and this kind of is a summary. This is chapter 8, verse 13, and what we looked at last week was the uh, new covenant, the end of the old covenant, and why the new covenant that the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 31, spoke of, how that is fulfilled. And so in verse uh, 13 of chapter 8, and I'm using the uh, NIV tonight. I, I was using uh, a study Bible that has the NIV, and uh, I just kind of kept with it. So I'm using the NIV translation on the overhead tonight for you to follow along. But this is a nice summary of chapter 8, where the writer uh, concludes this portion of chapter 8 that will lead us into chapter 9. He says, by calling this covenant new, what he's been talking about, the new covenant of uh, that Christ has established by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one what? Obsolete. What's another word for obsolete? Out of date. No good. You know, kind of a, like I said, uh, sometimes your computer will no longer it'll be obsolete. This week I was having trouble. Um, I have a wireless printer I've had for, I don't know, 10 years in my house. Works fine until Spectrum maybe get a new modem. And I troubleshoot, you know, the whole thing I was watching. Finally, dun, 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 I called them, right? You know, I should have called them first. And they're like, I told them what, they said, oh, um, yeah, that, that's not going to work because you, you have a newer modem and you have an older printer and they're not going to communicate with each other. Oh, good, thanks. I appreciate it. So, I'm going to still figure out a way not to have to buy a new one, but uh, I guess I'll have to do it the ancient way and actually hook a cord to it rather than the wireless. But either way, guess what? It, it, they were saying it's obsolete. You're going to have to buy something new, right? You're going to have to get something new. So what does the writer say? He says the old covenant is obsolete, uh, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Now, whether the Holy Spirit, which I'm sure the Holy Spirit who is behind the author here. Uh, we know that this was written roughly maybe 65, 66, and in year, the year 70, uh, we know historically that, the, that Jerusalem, the temple, all of that was destroyed by the Romans. So when he uh, says uh, what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear, uh, soon disappear was sooner than, you know, than... They realize probably, but um, and uh, so that's where chapter eight concludes. He was uh, showing the superiority of the new covenant, and now we're going to start in uh, chapter nine. And chapter nine, uh, if the priesthood of the old covenant, if the priesthood of the old covenant is obsolete, then the priesthood of the old covenant functioned uh, with very specific instructions in the worship of the temple or the tabernacle or the temple in the Holy of Holies, the, that sacrificial system. So therefore, if the priesthood has been replaced, uh, then the mode by which we worship God has been replaced by worshiping, meaning how we meet with God. God had established uh, the, the tabernacle, the sacrificial system, the uh, the Holy of Holies, the whole priesthood as a way in which uh, human beings could 
quote-unquote meet with God? Could, could uh, the priests serve as intermediaries, go-betweens between God and man? So if that entire thing has been replaced, then the way we access or the way we worship God has been replaced as well. But he uses the template, if you will, the structure, uh, picture of the Old Testament uh, of the tabernacle, which later was uh, built by uh, Sol- or, or Solomon built it, or David drew up the plans and uh, later uh, became uh, the temple of Solomon. And so that's kind of what he's referring to tonight. So let's kind of pick it up in verse 1. Now the first covenant, that's the old covenant, had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up in its first room where the lampstand and the table and its consecrated bread, this was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, And it also had Aaron's staff that had budded and the stone tablets of the covenant or the Ten Commandments. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the atonement cover. He says, but we cannot discuss these these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests, again, they would be, being Jews, this, they... You know, they, they know this quite well. We, we have to reacquaint ourselves a little bit, and we'll do that in just a minute. Verse 6, when everything had been arranged like this, the priests, again, he's talking about the Levitical priests, the Old Testament priests, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priests entered into the inner room, and that only once a year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and never without blood, which he, notice this again, this will be a contrast, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit, by this model, by this picture, remember uh, the Old Testament uh, speaks to us as new believers, the Things of the Old Covenant are shadows and types. Uh, they're, they're previews of coming attractions. But now the reality has been fulfilled in the New Covenant. Remember Paul spoke about and said that in Colossians chapter 2, verse 17, about the Sabbath and the feasts and all those things. Those were mere pictures. But now that these things have, we have found fulfillment in Christ, why do we want to you know, why do we want to continue with the, the pictures? You know, I, gave you, I always give that illustration of, you know, going to Longhorn and taking a picture of Sherry and sitting the picture there in the booth and having me a nice meal. No, that would be bad. The reality, the real Sherry's at home eating leftover when I'm eating Longhorn. So that wouldn't be good. So he says, look, why do you want to keep the shadows and types? This is Paul in Colossians 2.17. He says, why do you want to keep these shadows and types? when you have the reality that's in Christ. So anyway, so the Holy Spirit, now he's going to explain what the, the purpose is of these Old Testament structures. The, the Holy Spirit was showing by this, by what he just previously said, that the way into 
the most holy place. Only, remember again, the only the earthly priest could go in there once a year and not without, and he had to bring a blood of sacrifice. Uh, the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed. So, so you could, we could say, sometimes people might say, under this dispensation, under this period, uh, under this time period, maybe under this uh, covenantal period, that when they functioned, the Old Testament saints functioned and the priests functioned under that Old Testament system, he says the Holy Spirit had not yet disclosed. Okay, so they were operating by what they knew. They were operating, and sometimes people will say in, in one sense, they were operating uh, in those sh shadows and types, uh, looking forward. They knew that you know, these were temporary, but looking forward to the one who would come, who would be the, the Lamb of God, who would be the fulfillment, who would be the sacrifice of all sacrifices. But under that system, under the Old Covenant, it had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. All right, he's going somewhere. He said, this is an illustration for the present time. So the tabernacle, the sacrificial system, those are illustrations. They're types. They're not the reality, as he'll say. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able that's important. We're not able to do what? To clear the conscience of the worshiper, all right? The old system, uh, they were not able to clear the conscience. All they did was, uh, all they were was a perpetual reminder. But they did really, they did nothing of any permanence to the sinner, okay? So they were, they were, uh, they were limited, they are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. And that's his whole point. It's saying this time of the new order, this time in the new covenant, that is what has arrived. That is what, going back to that chapter 8, verse 13, the old covenant is obsolete. The old covenant has been replaced. This is different than what was then. This is the culmination. This is the fulfillment. Everything that this writer has been writing in Hebrews is all building up to this place. Now, I'm not going to teach on the tabernacle, but it's just because so many pictures and illustration he is using, I just want I thought it'd be helpful to just remind ourselves a little bit of uh, some of the structure. Now here is a, an artist's rendition, obviously, of the tabernacle in the wilderness, okay? So in, in Exodus 33, where the, the, uh, the plans and the uh, commandments or the, the word was given to Moses about building this uh, structure, the outer court, the way the uh, tabernacle in the wilderness, all the 12 tribes were situated around the tabernacle. The tabernacle faced east, uh, again, ultimately facing east to Jerusalem, but Jerusalem was of not yet. Uh, the three tribes in front of the, um, uh, the eastern gate, which is facing that entrance there, which is facing, it would be over here, this would be the east, facing, uh, uh, facing the east. The three tribes in front of that eastern gate were uh, Issachar, Zebulon, and Judah. 
Uh, and so, and then you had the other tribes around the tabernacle, and there's great significance there. Um, this is another illustration, gives you a little more uh, of a picture, a reminder. You see the uh, entrance of the, the curtain uh, here, and uh, you see how the uh, brazen altar, uh, the tables that were used for the sacrifice, uh, the brazen labor, uh, the water, and then you go into the um, uh, that uh, the temple or the uh, inner inner part, not the holy of holies, uh, and we'll see that in a minute. But this basic structure is what was laid out. Now, this is Solomon's temple that was built roughly about um, maybe eight hundred years before Christ, roughly. And uh, this isn't quite as big as a football field, but this is Solomon's temple. This is obviously a much larger, more elaborate structure. But the basic elements of what was in that tabernacle of the wilderness is inside. I'm going to get a little close-up here, and then I'm even going to get a little closer. But the, this basic structure, and I'll kind of go ahead here. This is not a real pretty drawing, but this basic structure you see here is what was the tabernacle of the wilderness. This was what was inside the tabernacle. Here was the entrance here. Here is the uh, altar, the burnt offering uh, by which we entered. Again, all sorts of pictures and symbolism here. Uh, the, the washing, the, uh, all, the uh, basin here. And then this is the uh, holy place. And inside of that holy place, that's where... How many of you went on that tour uh, that we went to? Uh, where was that? In Hudson or... Tarpon Springs, yeah, because we had good Greek food afterwards. And we took the seniors over there, and that life-size model uh, is over in Tar... And I would encourage you to go through that, because did you, if y'all went... Who went again? Who, who all went? Did you find you were struck by the size of it when you were standing there? Because it's built according to you know, scale, and it was amazing how big it was as you're, as you're standing there. But this guy's got this entire... Uh, replica model of that Old Testament wilderness tabernacle inside this large building, like a gymnasium, but uh, it's uh, worth uh, going to. Uh, and so again, you have the holy place where you have the golden lampstand, but here you have the holiest place, all right, the holy of holies. So as I said, here is the temple of, of Solomon here, this basic structure, and the elements are there, and here's a little more close-up inside what it might would have uh, resembled there in Solomon's uh, temple. And again, you have uh, the golden lampstands, the table of showbread. All these things have tremendous. But don't miss, because this is important, the veil. What purpose did the veil have? Is it separated? That was only, uh, again, only the high priest could enter into the holy place once a year, Yom Kippur, and uh, this veil was that which separated um, uh, everyone uh, from the, this uh, uh, holy of holies or the Ark of the Covenant uh, as uh, represented here with the cherubim, these angelic beings over this Ark or Arked over this covenant uh, uh, box. Uh, literally in the Hebrew, it's the word for coffin, which is interesting. And inside there, you had the uh, Ten Commandments. You had the Aaron's uh, staff that was uh, uh, had budding buds on it, and then you had the golden pot 
of manna. All right. So just by way of picture there, again, it's the same, same model structure. This isn't as pretty, but it's the basic layout. Here's the eastern entrance here. Uh, I think Judah was here. I think Issachar was here. And Zebulon was here, and again, I don't have, sorry, I don't have all the others memorized, but Judah was there, and then the others. And so again, Judah being from uh, the tribe that Messiah would come is, is at the front. Uh, and so that holy place, that was what was significant, that only the uh, high priest could enter, all right? So, look in your outline, I may not forget this, uh, number one is worship of God is superior now because of Christ. So that was the Old Testament prototype, the model, but now all of this, uh, these were pictures and types, and now all of these have been uh, replaced, if you will, or, for, or fulfilled in Christ. So a scripture that uh, I wanted to read, and it's number point, under point number two, uh, the Old Testament foreshadowed uh, the replacement of the old covenant, all right? So even in the structure of the tabernacle, it was foreshadowing one who would uh, fulfill all of these roles uh, ultimately. And so interesting, there's a scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that's on the screen, and uh, this is interesting because it gives a little uh, commentary on what is going on here. And uh, let's pick it up at verse 12. I thought it would be helpful to read it. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end that was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. And again, he's talking about those that are still looking to the Old Covenant. He said they're still functioning with that veil of Moses uh, where they can't see clearly. But, that, the, but clearness, just like us when we're born again, uh, the veil is removed because Christ has taken it away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we'll see that freedom uh, picture here as we continue in Hebrews. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So we, under the new covenant, we have the privilege of having unveiled faces, all right? Seeing the, the fullness of Christ. So again, point number two, the Old Testament foreshadowed the replacement of the old covenant, and Jesus points that the rituals could not free people from their sin. Uh, the veil, the covering that uh, was... that as he kind of uses Moses and as shorthand for the law and everything uh, for the old covenant, uh, there, was no, there was no ultimate uh, salvation in the law, but only through Christ have we been made set free and now under that new covenant. Number three, Christ is superior because of his sacrifice for sins. Christ is superior. Some of this is a little redundant to some territory the writer of Hebrews has covered before, but he does make some additional points. 
Uh, but he says, but when Christ, when Christ came as high priest, remember he talked about Christ as high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He went back even very, at the very beginning. He was talking about Christ as the high priest in uh, chapter 5. And then he paused uh, and began to uh, talk about their... their uh, their immaturity, their, their lackadaisical approach to the Christian life, encouraging them there uh, in chapter 5, and then he picks it up uh, after chapter 6. So that high priest concept of Jesus being the high priest of the new covenant, he's already laid that groundwork. So he says, but when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, again, uh, already here, we're not waiting you know, there's some Jews that are still waiting for the Messiah. They're already here, he says. The good things that are now available in Christ are already here. Uh, Ephesians 1 says that every spiritual blessing has been given to us in Christ right now. Uh, so, but when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Now, as I said, that's why I wanted you to kind of refresh yourself with some of those pictures of the tabernacle to kind of pick up that imagery because, again, he's using the high priest and, again, a, a heavenly tabernacle. Remember the city of Jerusalem in the book of Revelation? The Bible speaks about the new Jerusalem coming out from, coming down from where? From heaven, all right? Not, not down from Michigan, down from heaven, okay? Because the earthly New Jerusalem is just a type. It's just a picture of the heavenly city. So the earthly tabernacle, there was a heavenly uh, reality. Uh, the earthly wasn't the reality. It was just a reflection or a picture. But he says that Jesus, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. It is not made with human hands. That is to say, it is not a part of creation. He says... He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood. Now, I won't spend this, but make sure you understand this once and for all is not all for every human being that ever lived. Because if that is the case, then the atonement has been paid and we believe in universal salvation. What he's saying here, and in fact, if you... Uh, keep that thought there. It's once and for all time. In fact, if you look over, uh, let's see, that's in verse, uh, what is that, chapter 10, verse 12? Or, uh, that's uh, chapter 9, verse, what was that, verse uh, 12? Uh, look over to chapter, same book, look over to chapter 10, verse 12. <clears throat> I don't have it on the screen. Chapter 10, verse 12. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins. Does your translation say for all time? Yes, yes. Okay, my mind reading skills aren't working tonight. Uh, for all time. So you see, it is not for all everybody, but it's for all time. And the whole point, if you remember and just keep things in context... Again, he's talking about these priests who would have to go perpetually every year offering sacrifice after sacrifice. And his whole point about the superiority of Christ is that this high priest offered one sacrifice for all time, forever. And then what does it say? Uh, the holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. 
Okay, so it's not saying, it's not does not mean once and for everybody who ever lived because everybody has not obtained what? Okay, so it means once and for all time. And he says the blood of bulls and uh, uh, blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more? Again, he's using the point of comparison, all right? So if they've been ceremonially clean under the old system, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished to God, no earthly high priest, uh, son of Levi or Aaron, they they couldn't do that. He offered Himself unblemished to God, how much more Will he cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death so that we may do what? Why has God redeemed us? So that we may serve the living God. Why has this high priest done this? Why has he offered the uh, uh, atoning sacrifice once and for all time to those who have attained eternal uh, redemption? So that we may serve the living God. That's the whole gist and point of what the writer of Hebrews is one to encourage us. So, on your outline, number four, uh, the sacrifice of Christ frees us from the works of the law. The blood of Christ frees us. We don't have to come under the demands of the law keeping. Remember, you kept the law or you died. Now, the law didn't cleanse your conscience. It didn't do away with sin. But obedience to the law was the means by what God had established under the old covenant of determining how you will maintain uh, a right relationship to Him. That's changed. That's changed. We've been freed from that. It was just a perpetual reminder, year after year, sacrifice after sacrifice, a reminder that I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. And I'm going to be a worse sinner next year. But one day, there's one coming who will put an end to these sacrifices. There will be one who will come one day who will bring an end to this and will offer once and for all time the ultimate sacrifice that we may be free to serve the living God. So the sacrifice of Christ frees us from the works of all. Now remember his audience. He's talking and trying to motivate these people to don't, don't reason out and think, that you're going to go back into the old system and be pleasing to God there. Because God, as we said, as the scripture said in 8.13, it is obsolete. It doesn't work. It's not there. God's not in that anymore. Everything from Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1, uh, everything the writer of Hebrews has been talking about is the superiority of Christ. There's not plan A and an option B. No, it's one plan. One purpose. Again, what does he say at the very beginning? How does he set this whole thing up? In, t- in various ways, in various times, in sundry times, the old King James says, that God spoke through many messengers. But in these last days, and the force of the language in the Greek is a finality that he has spoken to us in or by his Son. Jesus is the capstone. He is the phoenice, nomos. He's it, all right? There's no more 
uh, prophets that we're looking for. There's no more messengers of God. We're not waiting for somebody to pick up the mantle of Messiah and fulfill what Jesus somehow didn't accomplish. That was, some of you remember the Unification Church and the Reverend Sun Myung Moon. Uh, his whole premise is that Jesus visited him one day in the mountains when he was praying and told him to finish the work that Jesus, in this phony vision, that Jesus failed. And so the Reverend Sun Myung Moon, how many remember that? Moonies, you know, and they were nicknamed, but they're still around. They're, they're multi-million dollar businesses, uh, making a lot of money, tax-free. Um, and uh, he said Jesus came to him in a vision, and basically he was to pick up where Jesus left off. Jesus failed. And so the Reverend Moon was going to pick up and finish the work. And uh, no, I don't think so. Number five, God has redeemed us, uh, and we already read that uh, at the end of verse 14. I included it, kind of uh, went a little fast there. But number five is what is at the end of verse 14, that we may serve uh, the living God there, all right? All right. Number six, the old covenant, and I just kind of did it this way to kind of uh, not run through, but I wanted to try to get all this in tonight. The old covenant system was only, and again, some of this is a little redundant, but he adds some pieces to it. The old covenant system, and when I say the old covenant system, law-keeping, ceremonial law, um, civil laws, all those things that were, that were a function of the people of Israel, the old covenant system was only a shadow or a picture of the reality fulfilled in Christ. And we've talked a lot about that. Uh, notice what he says in verse 23 what he calls it. And this is, again, I'm using the NIV. He says, it was necessary then for the copies. What does he say about these earthly things? They are what? They're copies of what? Of heavenly things. And his whole point is, they're not the reality. The reality has been fulfilled in Christ. But the tabernacle, the, all the trappings of the of the old covenant worship. Those things were just merely copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the, what? Heavenly things themselves with, and here's that word that he likes to use a lot, with better sacrifices than these, okay? He's layering and saying, why would you want to go backwards when you have the greatness of all that Christ has done? Now again, here's the picture of the high priest. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a what? A copy of the new one. All right? Why would you want to have why do you want a copy when you have the original? That he, Christ, entered heaven itself. The Bible says uh, man, I mean, man couldn't have done that because man is sinful. No one will, no one with sin can stand before the Lord and live. But the one who was sinless could accomplish all of this. He entered heaven itself now to appear for what? For us in God's presence. Do you remember back in, look back in, it won't be on the screen, but look back in your, in Hebrews and uh, do, 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 do. Uh, 
Look at uh, chapter 4. Again, some things he's already, he's kind of already groundwork he's already laid. He says, therefore, this is chapter 4, 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Why can we approach the throne of grace with confidence? Is because of Christ. And look over to chapter 6. Um, look at chapter 6, verse 19, with this in mind. Chapter 6, verse 19. We have this hope, again, this hope of what has been accomplished in Christ. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary. Again, he's using a lot of these terms of the tabernacle. It it enters, this hope enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on what? Our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And so he says also, um, I was trying to find this is what happens when you use a different Bible, but where... He forever. Oh, yes, sorry. And look over to chapter, with that thought in mind, go to chapter 7, verse 25. Go over to chapter 7, verse 25. This is what I wanted. Therefore, he is able to save completely, completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. So, read that again. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary, picturing the high priestly role made with human hands uh, that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us. The Bible calls him our advocate. Our advocate. Now to appear for us in God's presence. It's wonderful and as great as the Bible speaks about the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek couldn't have done that. But Christ, our high priest... So the old covenant, number six, system was only a shadow or a picture. The sacrifices of the old covenant could not remove the stains of guilt. Let me uh, jump over to uh, chapter 10 here. Stay on number six. The law was only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. Do you see how he keeps playing this off? Reality, copies. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, never, for this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Why? Because they're mere copies. You know, there's some places if you go, um, I think... uh, I don't know if this is still true. It's been a while since I got my passport. But they want to see, they don't want a copy of your birth certificate. They want 
an original or a official original, <laughs> which is a copy technically, but you know what I'm saying? They want, they want the real, I know uh, those of you who've had relatives who passed away, and I know I've oversaw my mother's estate, and, uh, and I remember somebody gave me great advice. I said, get more death certificates than you think you'll need, because you're going to need them for everything. They couldn't just me go down to, remember what, remember Kinko's? You know, they can't do that. Go Staples, I guess now. You can't just go down there and run off. No, they had to be official. They had to be original, I guess, if you say it that way. So, huh? Yeah, it had to have that indent, you know, that, that, that little indentation or however they, the seal, yeah. So he says the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. Um, those sacrifices were uh, useless as they just were reminders. Otherwise, he said, otherwise, if they had been useful, would they not have stopped being offered? If they were, if they were of use for the worshipers, if they had done their job, they would, worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. He says, but those sacrifices, the old covenant sacrifices, are an annual reminder of sins. When the high priest entered on that Yom Kippur, on that Day of Atonement, and he went in by himself into that Holy of Holies, he better have blood of a sacrifice, not only for his own sin, but for the sins of the people. Well, Jesus entered into that Holy of Holies by his own blood for the sins of the people, but he didn't need to atone for his sins. Much different. So why would you, why would you want to remain under that obsolete system? Remember who he's talking to? Trying to encourage them. Don't go, don't abandon. It's impossible. Impossible. Now you know what the Greek means, the word impossible? It means impossible. Jim, I thought you were going to bite on that one. You knew, you're too smart. I thought you were going to go for that one. It's impossible. All they did was, if you could say, temporarily cover sin. You know, have you heard me use this illustration? It's like never taking a bath, but just changing clothes every day. Sooner or later, well, you know how that works, right? So God has redeemed us. Uh, or rather, the old covenant system was only a shadow or picture of the reality in Christ. I, I wonder if those saints, the ones that were the genuine believers in Israel, as they by faith, because remember, it wasn't that God had a way of works in the Old Testament, and now He's grace. It's all grace. It's all been under grace. And so whether it was the system through the Old Testament sacrifice and the system God established on the Mosaic Law, it still required faith. It still, had, it still required trust in God. It wasn't the sacrifice in of itself, but it was whether that would be pleasing before the Lord. That was the way that God established that He made a way for humankind, sinful humankind, to meet with Him, if you will, to worship with Him. And so... Uh, I just always wonder whether year after year, time after time, the priests, every Yom Kippur, uh, that perhaps one day, as they thought, one day, everything we're doing here 
will be unnecessary. One day there will be one who will bring the ultimate sacrifice. That's what Isaiah saw when he said, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him, speaking of Christ, the iniquity of us all. He who, Romans says, he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Number seven, the fulfillment of Christ replacing the old covenant is supported by the Old Testament. I'm not going to spend much time here. Uh, Let me just mention a couple of things real quick. Uh, that what he does is he points to, let me see if I can find it here, what uh, verse, uh, let's see, we go back. He quotes, uh, yes, he quotes uh, Psalm 40, verse 6 through 8, and notice again, this is a psalm that has three elements in it, in Psalm 40, verse 6 through 8. First, he says, he attributes the authorship uh, of this psalm uh, to the Holy Spirit, uh, and uh, then he says, here I am, it is written about me in the scroll. This is, again, a prophetic, messianic prophecy in uh, Psalm 40, verse 6 through 8, that speaks of the uh, one who would come that would fulfill or abolish the old covenant and bring in the new. He says, here I am, it is written about me in the scroll. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire. Right there, that shows you that even under the old system, the the scripture shows the inadequacy. Nor were you pleased with them, okay? So they never were meant or intended to be that which pleased God. Though they were offered in accordance to the law. It was a means of obedience. Then he said, again, this is the psalmist speaking prophetically, Jesus, words of the Messiah. Here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ for all. And all he's doing is he's reaching back into the Old Testament to give that exegetical biblical support to what he's saying here and saying, see, even in Psalm 40, it is prophetically through the Messiah who is speaking here, is speaking about one day in which these sacrifices and things that uh, were not pleasing to God, one day the Messiah would come who would bring the fulfillment and bring and, be, and God would be pleased through the atonement of Christ, all right? Number eight, kind of chopped away at that. There was a lot more there that is worth getting into, but just for time's sake. Number eight, because of all that Christ has fulfilled. Um, actually, let me go back. I, did, I knew there was something here. Uh let me go back to verse, yeah, I was, maybe I don't have it, okay, all right, never mind, never mind, all right, all right, number eight, because of all that Christ has fulfilled, we are encouraged to persevere and not give up in our faith. Now, that's really important, so don't get lost in the weeds, let's go over to verse uh, 19, don't get lost in the, you know, Hebrews, once you kind of understand the purpose and what the writer of Hebrews is doing here and how all of these things fit into his purpose and point. Remember, the audience that he was writing to were Christian Jews who had become believers. 
And now, because of their acceptance of Jesus as Messiah, we're facing uh, ongoing suffering, persecution. We're questioning whether this is worth it. You know, we still have the temple. We still have all the structures. And now, you know, with Jesus, I mean, they're trying to find something to hang on to. And what is he doing? He's going over and over again, showing the reality, the spiritual reality of what they have in Christ. But that's saying, okay, I hear what you're saying, but, eh, but, but I'm here with the temple and the priests and the, and the synagogues and all the trappings of the old covenant. Those things I see, my family, my brothers, my sisters, they're celebrating the feasts and all these things. And I'm and I'm outside of all that. In fact, I've lost my job, and now I've got people that aren't buying my, uh, you know, my goods because they heard I belong to this Jesus cult. And, I, you know, and like, is it really worth it? He's saying, yeah, it is. In fact, if you give up, there is no, there is no hope. And so he says you need to persevere. Look at verse 19. Therefore, therefore is such a great word because that just synopsis of everything that he's been, he just said before. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence, and that's what he's been saying this whole time, confidence in who Jesus is, confidence in what Jesus has accomplished, because we have this confidence, we have this confidence to enter into the most holy place. Now think about what a radical statement that is. He wasn't saying just a high priest. He's saying that because Jesus has entered, we can enter. We, not just the outer court, not just the holy place, but he's saying we have confidence. I mean, that is, I don't even think we can even grasp that of how, how radical to a Jew that, that that concept would be. That we have confidence, we have confidence to enter the most holy place. How? By the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way opened for us through the curtain. Remember that curtain? What did that curtain do? It separated. We would say it separated us from the most intimate place of the presence of God. I mean, the priests, only one high priest could enter that annually. And even then, he better take the blood of a sacrifice and atone for his sin as well as... It wasn't just somebody, people going in and out. But that curtain, remember what... Uh, I know Mark has it, and I'm, I think one other gospel writer, maybe two of them, but I know uh, two of them have this, that when Jesus said, Tetelestai, it is finished. And the gospel of Mark, if you read his version of the death of Christ, he immediately jumps to where he says that the veil of the temple was ripped from top to bottom. So because of Jesus now, through his atonement, he's opened up a new and living way opened for us through the curtain. They knew what the curtain was. They knew what the curtain, they knew what that curtain represented. That is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance. So what's he saying? 
Hebrews is not a word. It, Hebrews is not a book of discouragement. It's a book that continually speaks about confidence, assurance, perseverance. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water like how the high priest would wash in that laver of water. Let us hold. He's telling these Hebrews that are, they're shaky. They're ready, to, they're ready to go back. They're being tempted. It's strong. It's tough. He says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess because we are faithful. Is that what he says? What does it say? For he who promised is faithful. Take your Bibles. Go to 1 John 1.9. You know this scripture. You should know it. 1 John 1.9. <clears throat> it's right before 2 John, 3 John, Jude. Well, I wasn't being snarky. I didn't want anybody to think I was talking about the gospel of John because... Some people might think that. I wouldn't be wouldn't being smart there. But it's hard to tell with me sometimes, I know. Uh, remember, uh, oh, how about I get in the right chapter? 1 John 1, nine. It says, if we confess, 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is what? Yeah. And will forgive us our sins. He is faithful. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And then he says, let us consider how we may spur one another toward good deeds. And that's in that context of encouraging one another. He says, don't, don't quit meeting together. Don't abandon each other. Don't abandon the fellowship. And so, number nine, because believers have the full atonement provided in Christ, that we are able to enter into that rest. He talked a little bit about that rest back in chapter four. Remember where he talked about how Jesus has fulfilled the Sabbath, that Jesus is our Sabbath rest, that even the Sabbath, the seven-day Sabbath, was a picture of how uh, in, in the creation God rested from his works. Jesus is a picture of God resting, and we can rest, if you will, in Christ. But then he goes on, we'll wrap it up uh, in uh, uh, verse 26. Let's just read that to the end. If we deliberately keep on sinning, and again, he's writing this as an encouragement to those that perhaps might not be genuine believers. If we keep on sinning, he didn't say if you keep sinning. He didn't say if you sin. But if you keep on deliberately, habitually sinning without any sense of repentance, he says if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, he said then there's no sacrifices for sins that are left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment. You see, again, picturing those Old Testament folks that even though they had all the benefits of the covenant, they had all the blessings of God, even they, they were not spared the wrath of, and judgment of God because of their flagrant, deliberate disobedience to God. And he's saying, look, 
Don't just think of, don't rest in the sense that you equate that, oh, with now I can just hit cruise control and just kind of live and do whatever I want. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, you know, don't just, don't presume upon this assurance as though you can just kind of, we've got sinless perfection and we can just kind of do whatever and live however we want. He says, listen, those Old Testament folks that died in the wilderness, they rebelled against God. They refused to obey God. And you know what? They, they, God did not spare his judgment upon them. He says, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Don't be an enemy of God. Don't show that you're an enemy of God because you just don't heed and don't obey. Anyone who rejected the law of, look at this, Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has, look at the language he uses, who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? Again, he's saying, look, you abandon, you apostatize, you reject, and you renounce, and you go back into this Old covenant system that God is not in. He says, in essence, you are trampling on the sacrifice of the Son of God. You're saying, you know what? It isn't, it isn't that important. It wasn't that big of a deal. I'm going to go back and earn righteousness the way my forefathers did. I'm not going to receive what Jesus did. You know, it really wasn't that important. And really, I need to go back and I need to go back into what I know. He says, such rebellion and apostasy is trampling the Son of God underfoot, who is treated, you're treating as an unholy thing, the blood of the covenant, the sacrifice that sanctified them, and who has insulted, look at the language here, insulted the Spirit of grace. And the last point, number 10, is a warning not to allow our suffering to be an occasion of disobedience and our perseverance. Now look at this, this is important and we'll wrap it up. Look what he says about this audience here. He says, remember those earlier days after you had received the light, after you came to faith in Christ. What happened when you endured in great conflict of suffering? Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. He's acknowledging, yeah, you suffered along with those in prison. And you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Remember remember that joy? Remember that faith that you could look at the persecution and joyfully because for the sake of Christ? Remember that? I want you to remember that freshness of Christ coming in your life. Why could you joyfully accept the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. Why could they endure? So what does he say? Don't throw away your confidence. Don't throw away your confidence. Esau, remember what Esau did? He was hungry, starving. Sold his birthright for what? 
a bowl of soup, meant nothing to him. He says what? Here's his point. He's just writing the whole book of Hebrews. You need to what? Persevere. So that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, and this is from the book of Habakkuk, for in just a little while, he who is coming will come and not delay. Don't miss the writer of Hebrews talking about the second coming of Christ. And again, quoting the prophet Habakkuk, but my righteous one will live by faith and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. Don't shrink back, he says. But we do not belong. See again. But we do not belong to those who shrink back. Just like he said, remember how he said this at the conclusion of those that were talking about apostasy? And he said, but I have confidence of better things for you. Back in chapter 6, verse 9, even though we speak like this, dear friends, in that section about those who abandon the faith, even though we speak like this, even though I speak with these warnings, dear friends, he said, we are convinced of better things in your case. The things that have to do with salvation. Even though I'm speaking, going back here to uh, the end of chapter 10, verse 39, even though I'm speaking to you in these warnings to not apostatize, don't abandon, don't reject, he says, but we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we belong to those who have faith and are saved. That's why I believe, again, the primary audience of the writer of Hebrews, he's addressing believers who are saved that he says even though he gives these warnings don't be like those but I have confidence of better things toward you we have this confidence in you persevere don't throw away your confidence 